Hey everyone, welcome back to LA Not So Confidential. I'm Dr. Shiloh, here as always with Dr. Scott. Hey folks. Hi guys. So episode 108, it is hot, this heat in Southern the California. Or, or us or what? <laughs> well, like there's a lot of things that, that could the be hot, right? The weather and yeah. global warming is not conducive to podcasters that have to work out of their homes and cut off the air. And sequester themselves into tiny little closets with no airflow. Yes. Yeah. I literally kicked my family out right now because I was like, you guys have to go find something to do because I'm turning off the air. <laughs> and it's going to be miserable <laughs> for a little bit. I know. I know. Thank you guys. You guys are the best. Well, let's do a little housekeeping off the top before we get started in our topic today. Just a reminder that Patreon members now get ad-free episodes. So please consider joining if you haven't already. As we move into the holiday season, there's a couple of fun perks that we do. We always send out a holiday card, but you would also, as Patreon members, get invited to our annual virtual holiday party which is yes. a blasty blast all the time. So we've done that for the last couple of years. It's so nice to just chat with people at the end of the year and soak everything in. And we have folks that are very chatty and folks that just want to sit there and hang out and be a part of it all. And we welcome all of the above. Yes. So please consider joining many other perks that you can read about over on Patreon. Also, we just came back from a wonderful time in Dallas at the True Crime Podcast Festival. Big thanks to our co-presenters, Dr. Amy Schlossberg and Dr. Megan Sachs, of course, of Women in Crime. Please go listen to their show for some fantastic storytelling and discussion on the criminal theories around some of the most intriguing crimes involving women, either as perpetrators, victims, investigators, they do it all. Absolutely. Yeah. So we're, we're happy that we have wrapped up one event, but we have some more coming up. I'm going to have a booth at the Savannah Crime Expo this weekend on September 10th. Come by and say hello. Dr. Scott's going to stay behind and do some work this time around, but we will both be at the Pacific Northwest True Crime Festival October 8th and 9th in Auburn, Washington. So many great podcasts are going to be there. Steve Hodel is going to be speaking as well as some other speakers that look really great. Remember, you can use our code LANOTSO15 for 15% off your tickets. So we hope to see you guys there. Yes, very excited about that. And I'm so sorry I won't be able to join you in Savannah. I am overwhelmed with the amount of work that I have to take care of, but I know you're going to have a blast in spooky, spooky Savannah. Yes, I can't wait. And it's going to be sultry. It's going to be spooky, sultry Savannah. Okay, say that three times fast. Yeah, exactly. So episode recap. Last week, you heard a bonus episode, which was our conversation with marriage and family therapist, Virginia Gilbert, dear friend of mine, who is an expert on high conflict divorce. She is so smart. She's so witty. I just hang on her every word because she went to specific direction with her expertise after we went to grad school together. And I, I watch her show over and over again, because there's always something else I pull from it. Now, this was a live stream chat that we released since there were five weeks in August. But our last full episode was on assassinations. Aside from discussing assassinations and assassination attempts, we explored the history of the Secret Service and their landmark research project that included them going out and interviewing 
those who had attempted assassinations. We also dove into the concept of extreme overvalued beliefs before finally covering the perpetrators of JFK's assassination and President Reagan's attempted assassination. That was a good one. And then when we were in Dallas, of course, we went to the grassy knoll and the sixth floor museum just kind of tied it all up for us. Oh, all right. So let's get into our episode today. We want to tackle this topic of elder abuse, which... Yeah. For me, tends to fall into that category, just like child abuse, where it's very difficult to really flesh out some of these crimes and talk about the horrible things that some people do in this world and with a very vulnerable population. It's not something that we see a lot of discussion on in the media or in popular culture. Despite the fact that there are a lot of crimes that happen. I mean, we'll be putting up a lot of articles on our Facebook page that you can access about the things that we're covering today. But I think it just makes people uncomfortable. I think so too. And I think that child abuse makes people angry and uncomfortable. Right. But elder abuse makes people just more uncomfortable and feeling powerless, maybe? I don't know. We're going to talk about some of the reasons that we might have these reactions. Yeah, I think it reminds people of their inevitable mortality, perhaps. It probably brings up a lot of family stuff for folks and also presents a real challenge of behavioral drift as family members navigate the eventual care of their elders. And those shifting roles, like yeah. the, the child now becomes the parent, the parent becomes the child in some ways. And right. you're, you may be a great parent to your toddler, but you're not necessarily prepared for your parents or your grandparents to become more impaired than they were when you were growing up. It can be shocking for people. Yeah. And what what is your role and responsibility there? Because You know, if you kind of look at it in the sense of like, well, we choose to have children and take on that responsibility, we then have to wrestle with the fact that because we are children of other people, that it might fall on us to take care of them as well. But definitely want to mention trigger warnings because we're going to be talking about all forms of abuse and discussing some particular cases. So, you know, that's going to be emotional, psychological, physical, and of course, you know, some that are nonviolent forms of abuse. Interestingly, I just read an article this week that said that trigger warnings do not work in the way we think they do. (laughs) That's a a topic for another time. But regardless, we are always going to let you know what we're going to be talking about. We're going to give you a heads up. Absolutely. You can choose whether or not you want to proceed. So any experience, professional, personal that you want to touch on or share, Scott? Well, my experience was basically seeing both of my parents be impaired by dementia. And especially watching my mother was particularly difficult because she was incredibly sharp, very educated woman, very sharp, incredibly independent. And to see that shift in cognitive functioning was really, really difficult. And we had the best possible system for her Mm. situation. We had the best possible system. We had so many siblings on board, giving each other support. Mom had planned for everything, including long-term care insurance. You know, it was it was the best case scenario. And in my day-to-day work, I see the worst. Unfortunately, I see people that have no resources that are impaired cognitively, and then they are just right for a financial abuse. If not worse, I mean, you can like when you think, is there anything worse than financial abuse? It's like, oh, yeah, there's there's actually a lot worse. And processing it with detectives that I work with, I have a story that I'll share at the end from Detective Pete that I work with that it's something that probably I wouldn't have had as much impact if I had read it. 
but having hearing it told to me by this very seasoned, very experienced detective was was jarring. Yeah. yeah. How yeah. about you? You know, I don't see it in my day-to-day work that I do. However, with having patients currently who are employees of a police department, a lot of middle age, a lot of sandwich generation, right? So they are taking care of their elderly parents as well as raising their children. We saw a need because of the stress that it can inflict on the oh, caretakers. Yeah. We saw a need to actually start a caregiver's peer support cadre, basically a support group. So they could support each other, they could get resources, they could have speakers come in and educate them about just where to start, what to do, what's available for support through the city, through the county, et cetera. And I know that's been very, very helpful. Personally, I only, when I was in law enforcement, and this didn't have to do necessarily with my job, but my best friend at the time was a dispatcher. She was dating a police officer who ended up getting arrested for financial abuse mm. of his elderly mother. They they were no longer dating at that time, but she kept in contact with him and he worked at a agency close to ours. But I don't know whatever happened with that, but I remember being shocked just because of what a nice man this person was, as well as working in law enforcement. And then realizing once she was telling me details, I was like, ooh, I know, you know, innocent till proven guilty, but that sounds bad, but it was financial abuse primarily. Yeah. And there are a lot of factors that we get into, but there's definitely in those close family knit situations, behavioral drift is much of a a factor as behavioral drift is in in the military, in police. Anytime you're in a situation where you just sort of, you lose your compass in a way. Right. So just off the top, we're going to give you a couple examples that illustrate the variety of ways that elder abuse occurs in the real world. In 2014 in Van Nuys, California, two men were arrested for their scheme of defrauding the elderly by offering fake home services that were never performed. So they would target elderly and sick homeowners by either posing as pest control workers or roofers or air duct workers. And what they would do is they would go in, do their little examination of the home, and then show the homeowners pictures of mold or pest control issues that actually didn't exist. So they would then charge thousands of dollars for fake repairs and even convince one homeowner to do a reverse mortgage to get $50,000 out of him. And the only good thing that comes from that is that they were arrested and they are doing prison time. And we'll also have links to the articles on this if you can stomach it, because some of them are really disturbing. Another example is an assault that happened in Fresno, California in the summer of this year that was about a 33-year-old man fighting with his 67-year-old neighbor by punching him in the face, putting him in a chokehold, and stomping on his body before help arrived. He was arrested and booked into custody at the Merced County Jail for felony elder abuse and battery, causing serious bodily injury. So you can have an assault, but it could be upgraded to include elder abuse as an additional charge. It's also like just mind-boggling, like a 33-year-old going after somebody that is clearly twice his age. And like, I don't know all the details of this particular one. I don't know what the argument was about. And perhaps the older person, who knows, they could have even instigated it. You don't fight back in that. Who cares? In fact, let people instigate, go the other way. Things are dangerous out there, folks. Turn and walk away. 
Yeah, definitely. So this next one, I want to give an additional trigger warning just because of the condition in which this woman was found. It's pretty hard to stomach. In December of 2021, two people in Forward Township, Pennsylvania were arrested after police found the elderly woman they had been living with and supposedly caring for in very dire condition. She was found laying on the couch in her own waist. They had estimated she had probably only taken a couple of showers in the last 12 years. Her hair was matted. She was unable to lift her head. She had six inch toenails. And when EMS arrived, they asked her, of course, as part of their assessment, what year it was. And she said that she thought it was 1949. She was taken to the hospital where she was also treated for COVID-19, pneumonia, and lice. Hmm. Additionally, the perpetrators were accessing her financial accounts for their own use. So that's a particularly horrific story. And that is very similar to what my detective colleague told me that he and another detective were investigating a case and by chance, they knocked on the wrong door. Oh my gosh. The door was opened and this woman was giving them information like, no, this is not the right place. They look over her and they see someone in almost the same state as what you're describing. And it was someone who had trusted a colleague. She trusted a coworker because she thought they were very good friends. Will you take care of me when I'm old? And if you do, you know, I'll make you the recipient of my my funds. Mm. And they took it and ran with it in a horrific way. So these things happen. That was, I think, over 10 years ago. And here's one of December of 2021. This happens all over the place. I just encourage people as you're listening today to be aware that you can be a part of making a difference. Like just be aware. We're going to give you a lot of information to be aware of, but be aware. And let's get to what the actual definition is of elder abuse. So elder abuse, and I'll be using elder abuse under California Penal Code 368, comes in many forms and can be perpetrated by family members, friends, caretakers, or nursing home facilities. The types of elder abuse go beyond physical and emotional harm. Elders can suffer from sexual assaults, financial exploitation, abandonment, and and many other types that fall into about seven categories. But most types of elder abuse are committed by trusted individuals like family members or nursing home staff. Elders can sometimes mistreat themselves through self-neglect as well. Interesting. Elderly individuals are more likely to self-report financial exploitation than they are other types that are just as or even more serious as we've seen already. These types generally include emotional, physical, sexual abuse or neglect, but psychological abuse is the most common type of elder abuse. We're going to get deeper into these definitions in a bit. But let's briefly explain the California Penal Code again to begin with. And of course, there's going to be some variance depending on what state or country that you live in as our listener. Also, as we have so many worldwide listeners, I would really like to hear your perspective on some of the points as we're talking about today, as it may vary from culture to culture. It's important to know that the following laws also apply to dependent adults, but we're going to be focusing on the elderly and geriatric populations for today's episode. So Penal Code 368, California Elder Abuse Criminal Laws Penal Code, defines elder abuse as the physical or emotional abuse neglect, or financial exploitation of a victim 65 years of age or older. The offense can be prosecuted as a misdemeanor or a felony, and it is punishable by up to four years of jail or prison or more, depending on the additional charges that can be layered onto it. Got it. So like enhancements 
depending on what's going on. So the legal definition of an elder, we're pulling this from the penal code section 368A, the legislature finds and declares that elders, adults whose physical or mental disabilities or other limitations restrict their ability to carry out normal activities or to protect their right and adults admitted as inpatients to a 24-hour health facility deserve special consideration and protection. So as you said before, we have kind of that age marker of 65 and older, but additionally, we have folks in these types of situations as well. Right. They're trying to be a little squishy about not having it be strictly at that age range, which I think is, is very helpful. So that was the definition of the elder. Let's look at the definition of the perpetrator. So a perpetrator is, and this is quoting from the penal code, a person who knows or reasonably should know that a person is an elder or dependent adult and who, under circumstances or conditions likely to produce great bodily harm or death, willfully causes or permits any elder or dependent adult to suffer or inflicts thereon unjustifiable physical pain or mental suffering or having the care or custody of any elder or dependent adult willfully causes or permits the person or health of the elder or dependent adult to be injured or willfully causes or permits the elder or dependent adult to be placed in a situation in which his or her person or health is endangered is punishable by imprisonment in a county jail not exceeding one year or by a fine not to exceed $6,000 or by both that fine and imprisonment or by imprisonment in the state prison for two, three, or four years. I know that's very complex, but (laughs) what it's doing is it's trying to gather everything. It's trying to cover every contingency. And again, it may sound like it's limiting it to just a couple of years and, you know, a handful of cash. But what you were saying, Dr. Shallow, is about the enhancements. This is the bare minimum basics. And generally, it's way more than just the basics when it comes to charges. Yeah, I think this is so interesting because there's not a lot of penal code sections where you get a definition of who the perpetrator is. And Oh, wow. I didn't even think of that. I don't that's know very interesting. why that's here, but I'm guessing there's been some gray area to like, like liability issues of have previous to defining this, have caretakers been exempt from sort of being prosecuted because of their job as a nurse or, you know, the facility that they're working or what have you. I wonder if they had to go in and really define this in the penal code section to say, hey, you can't be protected from doing these horrible things just because you're part of an entity or this elderly person not of sound mind signed everything over to you. There's still going to be some consequences here. Yeah, I like also how it drills down on that should know. The perpetrator is a person who reasonably should no. Mm-hmm. And I think that's kind of that's also closing in like for anybody that has any kind of moderate cognitive functioning is going to understand what an yeah. elderly person is. Yeah, very interesting. So one last definition for you guys, and then we'll yes. we'll move on. But we also wanted to differentiate and define dependent adult. So as used in this section, quote, dependent adult means a person regardless of whether this person lives independently, who is between the ages of 18 and 64, who has physical or mental limitations, which restrict his or her ability to carry out normal activities or to protect his or her rights, including but not limited to persons who have physical or developmental disability or whose physical or mental abilities have diminished because of age. Dependent adult includes a person between the ages 
again, of 18 and 64, who is admitted to an inpatient to a 24-hour health facility as defined in some other sections in the Health and Safety Code. Right. And this is very interesting that this definition comes up right now because this goes back to our Free Britney episode, which yep. is sort of the basis of how people have their rights taken away from them. This is a, an example of how the law is used to actually protect people. But of course, in some cases, it can be used to exploit people and thank goodness it's not as easy to do anymore. Although clearly, Brittany's example was really an exceptional, like exceptional, exceptional version of that. Yeah. So we started with the basic categories. Here are some examples of these types of crimes against elders. First, neglect. Neglecting or refusing food to an 80-year-old parent who cannot care for themselves. A caregiver or family member intentionally ridiculing an elderly individual for being wheelchair-bound, using fraud to convince a 90-year-old neighbor to make him the sole beneficiary of the elder's will. So these are just sort of some broad examples mm -hmm. that we came up with. The one that immediately fits into this is a terrible case out of Brazil that please see the posted link about this. A woman was just really desperate to get her hands on mom's fortune. So she set up an elaborate scheme, including fake fortune tellers to convince her elderly mother that all of the paintings in their home were cursed and they oh had gosh. to be taken out of the home. So it's millions of dollars worth of fine art. And she was paying off these quote unquote fortune tellers to keep telling her mom that these were cursed objects. They were making her life terrible and that she needed to get them out of the house. So daughter was like, of course, completely. I'll help you get rid of the cursed paintings, mom, if you sure. want me to. And not giving her mom any of the money, I'm sure when she's selling them. Yeah. $140 million. Oh my worth. God. $140 million. Wow. Wow. Oh my gosh. That's crazy. So in these cases, a prosecutor must prove the following to convict a person of a misdemeanor elder abuse charge. First, the defendant willfully or with criminal negligence subjected an elderly person to unjustifiable physical pain or mental suffering. Second, the conduct could have endangered the life or health of the elderly person. And then lastly, the accused knew or should have known that the victim was 65 years or older. So even though these are the bare basics of what's considered elder abuse by state law, we can break it down even further into specific types of elder abuse. Right. So we have abuse, neglect, financial exploitation. Those are the primary categories that really make it into the news. What's particularly frightening about this phenomenon is that abuse, neglect, and financial exploitation of a person age 60 or older or adults with disability between the ages of 18 and 59 is actually the least recognized and addressed form of family violence. These types of exploitation and abuse can take really many sub forms. And horribly, in most cases, elder or dependent adults are subjected to more than one type of abuse. If they're in an abuse environment, they are more likely to be subjected to other forms as well. Right. So like that really horrific case with that woman who clearly was being neglected, they were yeah. also financially stealing from her. In a 2020 study out of the state of Illinois, they found that 30% of adult abuse reports allege financial exploitation, approximately 20% allege physical abuse, 20% allege emotional abuse, and then 18% allege active or passive neglect. So that kind wow. of breaks down the different categories. The National Center on Elder Abuse did a study in 1998 and found that 45% of the perpetrators were age 40 or younger. That's pretty specific. Yeah, it really is. And then breaking down these stats even further from this 
study, they found that 39.5% were 41 to 59 years of age and that 59% of the perpetrators were male. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, not, I mean, it's a majority, but it's not like huge majority. It's, it's pretty close, you know, men and women doing these types of crimes. Yeah. I think it's also interesting in those stats. Like, I think there's another one that lines up that 59% of male perpetrators is versus 52.5% of all forms of elder abuse being perpetrated by men. So 50, 59 in financial versus 52 oh, across okay. the board. Very interesting and, and horrifying. I mean, like it's, I'm glad that we have these stats, but I'm, I'm, it's stomach turning to me. Yeah. So next, abandonment. Sometimes abandonment is paired with neglect, but elder abandonment happens when someone who cares for an older person intentionally deserts them. This is a very interesting one apart from the other ones, because while it can include intent, it also indicates generally that there's something else going on for that perpetrator. It's pretty clear in the name. It means the desertion or the intentional and willful dereliction of responsibility of the care of an elder by the person that is considered to be responsible for their care and custody. And that's within sort of the understanding that a reasonable person would continue to provide that care and custody. Right. This one's tough, like I was saying, because an individual can actually fall into that responsibility without fully understanding the span of duties and because there's literally no one else assisted livings yeah, like, and what they're trying to do let's say like long distance adult parents and children you know what is the expectation there i wonder you know that just reasonably you even if it's long distance you will be making arrangements to have your parents or loved ones looked after yeah you have to have these conversations with yeah. family members and a lot of people it's it's like illness it's like death people don't want to have these discussions so right. they put it off and then suddenly it's too late because your parent is paranoid and doesn't want to sign a POA or like it just gets very complex. There's also something going on and I am a big supporter of assisted livings if a family can afford it, especially a good assisted living. Like when my mom went in, she improved immensely and had really great quality of life for the last years of her life because she was doing things that a one-to-one -one caregiver would not be able to do. She was being given unbelievable amounts of stimulation all day with mm -hmm. music classes, with games, with interaction with staff, interaction with a number of her peers, and that actually staves off dementia. So when it falls to one person to be the caregiver or even within the family, the family may be distracted by their own responsibilities and activities of daily living and not be able to engage in enrichment activities for this person that's slowly right. losing their cognitive functioning. So as an example, a former caretaker may leave the individual at a hospital, a nursing home, or another care facility or with relatives without formalizing anything. And just a note here, perpetrators who abandon are likely to have significant mental health challenges, primarily depression, and they may have at one time taken on the responsibility, and now they're just completely overwhelmed with the challenges. But another thing that's coming up in the news, which is actually kind of scary, is that say someone is lower income and they don't have any family members, but a neighbor is doing what they can to support. Well, that's that neighbor can put all of this work together to transport that individual to the assisted living, like maybe it's publicly funded, but then they have to sign off on it. And when they sign the assisted living, especially the crooked ones, can come back later and demand payment 
from the person that delivered them to the assisted living. So another real stumbling block in our system here in the US, which we'll circle back around to in a bit. So when you give this example of a former caretaker leaving the person at a nursing home or a care facility, is this akin to like a parent who can't take care of an infant dropping them off at a hospital when... (laughs) Before the times where we didn't ask any questions and we just wanted to save babies, is this kind of like they're very overwhelmed, they just drop them off, they just abandon them, something like that? I mean, unfortunately, there are examples where people abandon family members or the elders in their care and they just abandon them, like put them on a bus. I mean, it's really, really not good examples or like I think there was one where someone was dumped out in a forest, you know, just this poor, oh my gosh, you know, person with dementia wandering around in a forest. But what they're saying is that when someone says, well, okay, they've got this much coming in from Medicare or Medi-Cal, and they've got this much coming in from Social Security, we're going to take them to one of the lower income assisted livings, and then they take them there. Well, then the assisted living can say, well, you're the person responsible for dropping them off, right? So just sign right here that you're taking that responsibility. Mm-hmm. And then they can come back two years later and go, hey, you know, their public funding is not paying for it. And now you, because you signed this document, you are now responsible for making that up, which is really, that is not good. I mean, I gave a neighbor as an example, but that can also be another family member like that's suddenly, hey, I can't budget to do this. I can't pay this. Yeah. Wow. I guess it has to come from somewhere and those facilities are looking for their payment for sure. So getting into some other more disturbing ways in which the elderly can be abused, of course, is within that category of what I would say is physical is just confinement. So restraining or isolating a person for anything other than medical reasons. And this, again, is indicative of someone just not wanting to care for this person and maybe resorting to, okay, I'm going to strap them down so I can go do my thing. And it's not for the person in need. Right. But here's where it gets really sticky because what if it is a single caregiver in a specific situation without a lot of means or resources and the elder is now in a position where they're wandering? I know. So that puts, unfortunately, a really uncomfortable onus on the caregiver because how are they going to keep the person safe? They are responsible for the person keeping themselves safe, but they can't restrain them or it looks really bad if they restrain them. So again, a big gray area that's really difficult here. Yeah, definitely. And then of course, there's emotional abuse. This can be verbal assaults, threats of abuse, harassment, intimidation, all of those. And signs of emotional and psychological abuse in elders can include depression symptoms, appearing withdrawn, appearing scared, you know, almost like a little kid or an animal who is fearful of loud noises and yelling, avoiding eye contact, maybe even their eating and sleeping patterns have changed. And then of course, something typical that we see with depression is where they isolate away from friends and family and peers. And then with that comes the low self-esteem and some mood issues, mood swings, and unregulated emotionality. Yeah, which is really disturbing because how are they going to communicate that? Who do they communicate it to if they're in fear or they're hypervigilant? Or if there even is like a little bit of cognitive decline and paranoia is setting in, they could be experiencing abuse, but be too scared or too paranoid actually to express what's going on. Mm -hmm. 
So the next most common form of exploitation is financial exploitation. And that is the intentional or willful misuse or withholding of a person's financial resources in order for the perpetrator to personally benefit. Key phrase there, personally benefit. And I'm so glad that that is spelled out in that way. Emotional abuse can take really many forms. I mean, caregivers can belittle elders, they can call them names, they can threaten them, but this is not just name calling. Caregivers can even cut off older people from loved ones or from their resources. And that is in order to start isolating them in order to move their financial exploitation forward. Yeah. So no one else so, knows what they're doing with the finances. Exactly. You're isolating them from family. And it's like, it's just going to be, we're going to be in this bubble where I know what else, everything's going on. Yeah. So here are some of the signs that might show up for that. There's a pattern of missing belongings or property, the, the elder having no idea or no understanding of what's going on in their financial situation, bank statements or canceled checks that go to somebody else other than the person that's in charge, changes to an older person's power of attorney or changes to the ownership of the bank account, sudden eviction notices, evidence of unpaid bills, or, and this is a big one, someone showing an unnaturally high level of interest in how much money an elder is spending. Although this could also be evidence of someone being aware that there are irregularities in the elder's ability to care for themselves and that they may actually need help managing finances. And then finally, withdrawals that the elder could not have made. Yeah. Yeah. And according to the MetLife study of elder financial abuse, financial abuse costs elders an estimated $2.9 billion every oh year. Oh my God. It's the Ugh. most commonly self-reported type of elder abuse because again, when it comes to finances, something that's not violent or right. intimate, it, there's less of a stigma to report it. Wow. So another type is a passive neglect that with this is where the caregiver fails to provide the elder individual with elements that are necessary, such as medical care, nutrition, housing or shelter and clothing. And this can also be the caregiver's lack of awareness of services that are necessary to meet the needs of the elder or their inability to care. So willful or unaware. Mm. Very interesting here. This goes back to what I was saying before is that sometimes when it gets into the area of abandonment, a caregiver's own mental health state can shut them down yeah. so that they're not aware of the things that need to happen in order to care for this elderly person. Right, right. And then of course we have physical abuse. So Oof. this would be causing or inflicting physical pain or injury to the person that they're caring for. And then there's intentional or willful deprivation. So the intentional denial of assistance or service to access required basic needs, which can also include medication, healthcare, how their environment is set up, their bed, all of those things, just basic needs for whatever stage they are at in life, their limitations, their disabilities, all of that could fall under the umbrella of depriving someone of what their needs are. So sexual abuse is also another area, and that could include touching, fondling, or any other sexual activity with a person when the person is unable to understand, unwilling to consent, threatened, or physically forced. And unfortunately, there are many, many examples yeah. of this happening in poorly run skilled nursing facilities or poorly run assisted livings. Not the better ones, but you know, the better ones really these days especially are vetting their employees mm -hmm. very strongly. But every once in a while, you'll read an example that is 
quite horrible. You know, you think that your your parent, your grandparent, and your loved one is being cared for, and then there's a you know like a night orderly or a night care person that is victimizing them. Well, and I don't think the elderly comes to mind when you think of who would be a victim of sexual abuse. I mean, occasionally we hear about, you know, sort of these equal opportunity, really antisocial sexual perpetrators that do victimize older women usually, but it just, I think it's really far from people's mind. When you, when you think about all the other ways in which an elderly person can be abused, this is probably not something that comes to light, but definitely does happen. Well, yeah, because we don't think of older people as being sexual, which I mean, they're not necessarily being, they're not being, they're not giving their consent in this way, but we also just don't think of perpetrators going after someone that is that much older than them. Like they're not desirable. Right. We would like, it's easy for us to think of them as undesirable, I guess. Yeah, exactly. But if you learned anything from listening to us about sex offenders, they know how to weasel their way into careers that put them in close proximity to vulnerable victims. Absolutely. And on on that note, let's talk a little bit about who are the perpetrators of these crimes. And it can really vary. And, And I feel like we leave listeners frustrated more often than not with saying there is no one particular profile with someone like this. And the abuser could be many different things and suffering from many different things, including they might be someone who has mental or emotional challenges or criminal history. They also may have an alcohol or substance abuse problem, which is contributing to their decision-making, but they also might just be frustrated or isolated themselves and have very poor coping skills when it or comes resources themselves, right? right? Right. So that all of those things together can be a perfect storm for leading to some sort of abuse covering all the ones that we just listed off. And interventions must take into account whenever possible that most people do not want to inflict abuse, but may be inadvertent abusers. Yeah, I think that's very important. Yeah, because it can happen. We've got a broad spectrum here of people that inflict this kind of damage. And many times it can be just from the caregivers own inadequacies or their own challenges in life, even though we're giving pretty solid examples in today's episodes about people that are intentional in their abuse and their manipulation for secondary gain. I think it's hard to wrap your head around that. And again, like when we talk about sexual offending, you have your your people that are attracted to and engage in sexually deviant behaviors, but you do have those situational and opportunistic offenders as well. And that's really hard for people to understand because they're, we always put ourselves in the shoes, right? Well, I would never do something like that. I could never be so stressed out and isolated and in a substance abuse problem where I would do something like that. But that's exactly what we're talking about here. Yeah. That's how they got there. So victims could be very fearful of reporting abuse, reporting neglect, or even their fear of financial exploitation because they think that it could lead to further harm or that it could be taking them away from the only thing that they know, which might be where they reside. You know, many times, even my mom, as a perfect example, had planned for years. She was so glad that she had this plan to be able to go into assisted living. And yet when it was time to transition, it was terrifying for her, like because her cognitive abilities had really deteriorated, even though there was a a great leap back within a month that the day that my siblings were moving her was was very, very difficult. So earlier we talked about 
the signs of financial abuse. So let's talk about the signs of physical abuse. There can be cuts or scrapes, which is really hard because given a person's ability to navigate their space, they might bump into things more. Elderly skin is, is very, very thin. People tend to bruise very easily, yeah. but you also want to look for those cuts, scrapes, broken bones, bruises, dislocated joints, head injuries, sprains, but also a pattern of hospitalization for the same or similar injuries, mm. which is very much like child abuse. Yep. That's a big one for looking at child abuse as well. Another telling thing would be like a very poor explanation for that elderly person's injury from their care provider. Here's one that really bumps it up to the next level is if the elderly person is continually injured and they're going to different emergency rooms. And that would be a well thought out plan to avoid suspicion. Another frightening example and correlation to child abuse as well. Definitely inadequate or unclean clothing, signs of dehydration, malnutrition in their environment. If they're at home or in a long-term care facility, if there's a lack of food, if they don't have access to the needed medical aids or the medications that they need, if their hygiene is going down, if their elements in their home, even though they have someone taking care of them, but they're unsafe elements in their home, mm. that is not good at all. Weight loss, but then again, you have to differentiate all these things because as an, a person gets older, their appetite might change. Their appetite changes because they're no longer able to taste things the way that they did in the past. So it's very complex when we're looking at this, but it still warrants observation to protect the elderly individual's safety. So what form of abuse do you think is the most common? I, off the top of my head, after looking at some of the literature, I, I was thinking that it's financial. Is it? Well, I, I think that's a really good <laughs> guess because of what we said. Like, that's the one that's easiest for people to report, right? Oh, okay. But okay. if we look beyond just the numbers of what's being reported and what is what's actually happening out there once there's some more digging, emotional abuse actually ends up being the most common type of elder abuse. And this is according to data from the World Health Organization. So they found that one out of three nursing home residents or their families reported cases of emotional nursing home abuse. Oof. Yeah. And nearly one in three nursing home staff also admitted to emotionally abusing residents. So they have great data that looks at it from both sides. I would love to know how they got that data, if they kept it anonymous. Well, I'm wondering, yeah, I'm wondering if it, if they developed studies because about seven years ago, there was a huge case in the news where an elderly person's family members put a teddy cam in their room and they were two of the nurses or not, they, I don't know if they were nurses, they were attendants, mm -hmm. were horribly, horribly verbally abusing this poor old man. It was just awful, awful. Like in conjunction at the same time doing it or they're just oh, going to yeah. be too, oh, that's horrible. Yeah. They're really awful. That's the hardest thing for me to understand is when two people like conspire and are doing this terrible thing together, you know? Ugh. Yeah, but, you know, but doesn't it, I'm not going to say that it's folie ado, but I think it's the shared disinhibition. Like if you have a partner, in some ways, having a partner is like, oh, this person, I'm going to hold myself accountable to this person. Yeah. But it can also work in exactly the opposite is like, oh, this person's horrific behavior has now given me permission yeah. to act horrifically. So I did yeah. want to move on in this next example that we want to start. This is a perfect example of something that absolutely is not elder abuse. It's not at all, but it got mistaken for it and it affected a well-known celebrity's life. Mm -hmm. And I give this an example 
example of why we need to be really careful about how we report these things. And also, again, that gray area of how difficult it is to parent elderly people as they are starting to decline that still have their own opinions, they have their own will, all of that. So take us away. On December 20th, 2021, Robert and Diane Witt, parents of the well-known actress Alicia Witt, were found deceased in their Massachusetts home. Robert was 80 years old and Diane was 75. Alicia had been a prolific working actress since 1984 when she appeared in the key role of Aaliyah in David Lynch's movie adaptation of Dune. She went on to star in Mr. Holland's Opus, Sybil, Urban Legend, Vanilla Sky, Law and Order, Friday Night Lights, Justified, Nashville, The Exorcist, The Walking Dead, and many others, including Twin Peaks when she was young too. Yeah, so she's been around for a very long time. And of course, she's an adult now and has played in television and film. And she's you know, got a great reputation. She's supposed to be wonderful to work with. According to police reports, there were no immediate indications of foul play in the deaths of Robert and Diane. But within a few days, there were, of course, rumors all over the place in the online media and, you know, the Twitter sphere that the family was estranged and that Alicia had abandoned and neglected her parents. Following that, it was then revealed that Robert and Diane had died of primary hypothermia leading to dysrhythmia, or in layman's terms, they froze to death. And that caused their hearts to malfunction and then stop. So several interviews and confirmation by neighbors and other family members indicated that Alicia had made great efforts over the years, like over a decade to provide support for her parents, including home repairs. Neighbors interviewed told the local television station that Robert and Diane were believed to be ill for some times, but they always refused offers of support from the neighbors and to the point where neighbors just didn't even ask anymore and went ahead and mowed their lawn and cleared snow without asking them because they knew they were always going to get a no. They can't force food on them. They can't force their way into their homes. So they just did what they could. I have not been able to find any research or indication that wellness checks were sent by the community, like the county or the city, but that would have been the next step in some place like Los Angeles. Like you definitely, we have a 211 you can call and make a report to Adult Protective Services to go out and do a welfare check. Over the years, the relationship became highly strained as the elderly couple continued to isolate themselves and re- refuse help, eventually resulting in their heat going out despite Alicia's attempts to provide support. Alicia has attempted to educate the public on what happened with her parents, calling them deeply kind, curious, intuitive, wise, young at heart, and funny. She went on to say that the circumstances around her parents' sudden passings have become fodder for press, and there are some misconceptions rolling around, understandably so. She went on to say that she begged, cried, tried to reason with them, tried to convince them to let her help them move, but every time they became furious with her, telling her she had no right to tell them how to live their lives and that they had it all under control and it was not for a lack of trying on her part or the part of other people who loved them and obviously even the community was trying to rally behind them. Yeah. Alicia went on to say that her parents were not destitute. They were not without funds, but she delicately shared that some of the choices that they had made over the years were problematic. And she stopped short of initiating the court system processes for removing their rights. And in every other way than handling their finances, she describes them as very sharp, very independent and very capable adults. But throughout her interviews, Alicia uses some very well thought out and telling word choices. They were a united, intertwined, indivisible force determined to do things their own way. 
Hmm. And then she goes on to say that taking away their rights would have destroyed them. Wow. I think that's a fascinating use of terms. That sounds like to me, someone who's been in therapy yeah, and, and has an understanding of what's going on between her parents. And Alicia's trying to do a really good job of communicating to the public that like, there are some situations that you can't do anything unless you're going to pay someone to break down the door and drag them out. And, and I don't know, maybe sometimes that's the right thing to do. It doesn't sound like there was any indication that something like this would have happened. I mean, it's, it's fascinating that they let their bills go to get to the point that their heat was turned off. Yeah, but it happens. It does. And it's such a sad situation. And I can't imagine what a helpless feeling that is. But also knowing that your parents are, they're of sound mind, even though they have very strong feelings and are digging their heels in on some things. And it, when it's two of them doing it, you start to go, okay, well, they get to choose their own fate. I think it's a really difficult position to be in. You know, it's a really difficult position to be in to, like she's saying, drag them out of the house or knock down the door. If it was a child, I think we would know that we have to do that, right? With adults, it is very, very complex. And especially when people are, when she's using those words intertwined, what I'm hearing Mm -hmm. is enmeshed. Yeah. Like they had their own thing going. I mean, it sounds like they were a very artistic couple, you know, very, very creative and they just lived in their own world. And another reason that's why it's so important for letting your elderly parents and your elderly friends socialize on a regular basis because dementia and cognitive problems are actually aggravated by lack of socialization. Socializing as we get older really helps support neurological function. So anyway, just tragic case, but that was an example of something that was not abuse, but could easily have been misconstrued. Oh, as abuse. yeah, absolutely. Now we get another example that was in the celebrity sphere that's more complex, and it's even made even more complex by the fact that the court cases indicated that it wasn't abuse when there clearly was some stuff going on. So we're talking about a civil case versus a state case, which we'll get to in a second. But a lot of people may not know this name. He certainly is a big name from from my childhood, Casey Kasem. Casey Kasem was a prolific actor, a prolific voiceover artist. He was in so many cartoons throughout the 70s and 80s, a well-known disc jockey with a radio show that went on for decades in the US. And although you would recognize a lot of what he's done, his most famous character is Shaggy in the original Scooby-Doo cartoon, as well as Robin, in the Super Friends cartoon. Those are the ones that I grew up with. So in 1994, as an American of Lebanese descent, he led a campaign for a more fair and equitable depiction of characters of all cultures, including both villains and heroes. And he got inspired to do this because of some of the questionable lyrics in Disney's 1994 sequel to Aladdin entitled The Return of Jafar. Do you so know this was a very big deal. Even original Aladdin is so problematic with everything. Oh, they had to cut it. So on Disney Plus, we have, you know, Disney Plus subscription. And my daughter has her own profile, which is under the kids version. Aladdin doesn't show up on that. It only shows up if you go to the all access profile. Yeah. Yeah. Cause they, they depict some things as being that are, were not culturally accurate, not culturally appropriate. So Casey Kasem had two marriages. His first marriage resulted in three children. And then in 1980, he married actress Jean Thompson. They remained married until his death and they share a daughter whose name is Liberty Jean Kasem. So in October, 2013, his daughter from his first marriage, 
Carrie Kasem, announced her father had Parkinson's disease and that he had been diagnosed all the way back in 2007. Several months later, she then revealed to the media that an updated diagnosis had revealed he was actually diagnosed with Lewy body dementia, a neurological condition that is notoriously difficult to differentiate from Parkinson's as well as other types of dementia. And the condition left him unable to communicate during his final months, which you can probably already foresee that this is going to be problematic. Right. Most people might know that Lewy body dementia is also known as the debilitating condition that Robin Williams was diagnosed with prior to his death by suicide. It is a brutal, brutal condition that includes mood swings, severe depression, and hallucinations. I mean, it is not a pleasant way to go, which is likely a very much a driving factor and why Robin Williams took sure. his own life. And as with any serious progressive neurological disease, Kasem's health declined significantly in 2013. And from that time on, his then wife, Jean, closely monitored and restricted any contact with family members and the public, but mainly his children from the first marriage. So of course, you can completely understand that tensions rose quickly with his children and Kasem's brother protesting in front of his home as they sought to gain conservatorship over him in order to preserve his life, basically, because Gene was becoming more and more difficult to work with, even with communicate with. So eventually his health condition deteriorated to a point that it required him to be transferred to a nursing facility. And then Gene removed him from that location on May 7th, 2014, immediately following Carrie's successful grant of temporary conservatorship. Hmm. So the court immediately orders an investigation into his location after Gene's attorney told them that he was no longer in the country. Casey was found a short time later in Washington state. He was found to be in critical but stable condition in a Washington state hospital. He required treatment though for high blood pressure, bed sores, malnutrition, and dehydration, all symptoms indicating that he had been bedridden for some time. Now, let me just say here, very important. He'd been bedridden for some time. So the worst thing that you can do is pick somebody up and move them three states away. Yeah, I mean, what is she just doing? Clearly not in the best mind for making healthy decisions. And she claimed that Casey had been given no food or water or medication since the previous weekend, but she was evading the fact that she had intentionally sequestered, isolated, and then transported him, a dependent and mentally infirm adult, in her care, away from his family members and out of state. So crossing state lines, which is very interesting. We don't get into it very much this episode, but crossing state lines, I'm really surprised that that did not come up as a charge later on. Well, it's hard. You know, you have like these civil issues versus criminal issues. And I remember when all this was happening and it was just yeah. in the media because his children from his previous marriage just didn't know what else to do, but just make people aware of what was happening. I'm sure they felt so powerless. Right. And they were trying to carry out the wishes that he made explicit to them exactly. decades before. Like I think 15 years before he had laid out, if I get infirm, this is what I want to happen. Yeah. So Carrie, his biological daughter, shared through a statement given by her attorney that she had followed her father's wishes that he had attested to in 2007, mm -hmm. where he said he wished to be taken off all support, including nourishment, if his illness would result in a mere biological existence, devoid of cognitive function, with no reasonable hope for normal functioning. So that's pretty darn clear. <laughs> yeah. While the judge attempted to overrule Casey's wish, 
He then allowed it when doctors attested that Casey's body was no longer able to respond to any nutritive intake and then allowed for end-of-life measures over the objections of Gene. So it sounds like somehow during that transportation period, there was conflict about what the plan was going to be. Was Gene taking him away so that she could make sure that he was getting nutrition? Anyway, this is all covered in a podcast, which I highly recommend. I don't, we won't go into those details, but there was a really, really great podcast that covered this that I'll mention in just a second. But Casey died on June 15th, 2014 at St. Anthony's Hospital. He was 82 years old and the cause of death was reported reported as sepsis caused by an ulcerated bed sore. Gene immediately took possession of his body and had it cremated rather than fulfilling his wishes to be interred at the Forest Lawn Memorial Park. That's a very famous mm -hmm. cemetery here in the Los Angeles area. It has a couple of different locations, actually. Carrie had filed a temporary restraining order to prevent Gene from cremating Casey's body in order for a full autopsy to be performed. But by the time the temporary restraining order was delivered to the funeral home, Jean had moved his remains to a funeral home in Montreal with her intention to inter him in Oslo, what? of all places. This of Oslo. Like, horrible. why, where did he indicate ever that he would want to be taken to Oslo? Which, I mean, uh. it's so weird to talk about this because like, I mean, on one hand, and I think I'm a little bit more squishy when it comes to emotions about stuff like this, but, you know, your body is just the body. Once you're gone, it's gone. But to not respect the wishes of somebody and to not respect the children's wishes when they're clearly have what appear to me to be very pure motives to just, yeah. you know, fulfill his wishes. Like it's just the worst. And all this weird, like cloak and dagger stuff and like taking him across state lines and taking him across country lines. And right. Like, just and just to continue horrible. to break, break rules. Yeah. Yeah. She it seems like she's definitely hiding something. But Kasem's children and his brother ended up suing Jean in 2015 for wrongful death, charging that... She had inflicted elder abuse, including emotional distress, by restricting access to his mm. family members. So okay. I think that's an interesting yeah. way of phrasing it. 2018 police investigation found no evidence of abuse and the case was dropped. However, a civil case that has become famous, Kasem versus Kasem, did prove that Casey clearly made his wishes for end-of-life care known as early as 2007, the lawsuit clearly showed that Casey wanted his daughter, Carrie, to make healthcare decisions for him. Records showed that he often visited his adult children until Jean started barring them from visiting. Oh, God. The civil case also proved that Jean moved Casey in the middle of the night against medical advice to an undisclosed location, further isolating him from the family. You know, I'm really glad you used that term, that against medical advice is a very big deal. It's a very big deal. This something like this to me is the exact display of power of civil cases, because when criminal cases either don't go the way that victims want them to go or get dropped or justice is not served, I feel like civil cases with the lower threshold are able to dig up so much more of the facts at times. The contrast is just kind of mind blowing, though, that like clearly the civil case outlines what was done inappropriately, incorrectly and illegally. Yeah. And yet the other case wouldn't. The name of that podcast was Bitter Blood. They do a great job of methodically going through the details 
that were actually unreported information about this whole complex situation. And Kerry has gone on to instigate a much needed movement to combat elder abuse and isolation. And it's called Kasem Cares. And the law that she kind of set into motion and similar versions of a visitation bill have now been passed in 21 states. So some really good movement and talk about like turning a horrible situation into something that could really protect people. I mean, I yeah. you have to applaud her for those efforts. For sure. Okay. So we've, we've given a few different examples of the types of elder abuse situations that can occur, but that doesn't mean that the perpetrators all fit the same profile, right? right. So let's talk about the motivations and characteristics that are involved to what extent we can, because there's actually very little research. <laughs> right. <laughs> regarding the motivations and characteristics of these perpetrators. So what we find in the literature is deductive and speculative rather than statistically supported, which is what we would prefer. But even though it's clear that much more research is needed, there's one set of motivations that's really clearly identified as highly associated with all these forms of elder abuse across the spectrum. And that includes a history, the perpetrator's history of substance abuse, their mental health history, any issues in gambling or financial problems, and also a perpetrator's actions that are based on learned violence, or they're actually modeled on the behaviors of the elder person that were experienced by the perpetrator in the familial experience. So sit with that for a second. That's another really complex issue here is what if you are the sole caregiver for a person that abused the shit out of you? Wow as a child. Mm. That is a major, major red flag right there for something to happen where a person becomes, you know, so upset that they, or maybe they feel justified, like this person treated me like crap. I mean, it's actually interesting because there's a real phenomenon today in today's world of many people going, I'm not going to take care of my parents. They were absolute pieces of crap. Yeah. I'm not going to do it. You know, that sort of cultural pressure doesn't exist in the same way that it used to. And also significantly, when the perpetrator is the primary caregiver, the level of stress experienced by that individual, it's always a huge influence. Yes. So the less resilient the person is and resiliency can be worn down by their lack of resources or lack of support, the level of stress going up is going to greatly increase the chances of perpetration of one of these forms. Yeah. So let's narrow this down even more and talk about emotional abusers to begin with. When we talk about emotional abusers, researchers have identified several factors that make caretakers more likely to commit emotional abuse. All of these factors relate to the stress of caregiving, as you were talking about. So this could be that they can't control their own temper or mood. They feel angry, resentful towards the elder, or just have a poor relationship with the elder to begin with. And almost anyone is capable of committing emotional elder abuse. If you look at it from that perspective, from loved ones to strangers, we're supposed to provide care. Anyone tasked with this, even if it is your job to work in a healthcare facility with this population, you can be stressed by your job and burnt out and not have good coping mechanisms for dealing with that. And then it comes out in your work. And then sometimes through these abusive means. Some examples would be, like we said, family members, yeah. staff members, other types of caregivers. So really, we could be talking about a number of people that fit into this category that are susceptible to emotional abuse, whether they're professionals or not. Yeah, absolutely. 
caregivers, people tangentially related or family members, mm-hmm. neighbors, you know, that could take on be taking on too much responsibility or more responsibility than they were prepared for. When we talk about the people that commit financial abuse, though, the abuser may be in the position of inheriting money or assets from the victim, and therefore they can feel justified in their treatment because that includes well, I'm going to pay myself, right? I'm going to like, I'm going to, I'm going to pay myself for all of this because I deserve it, blah, blah, blah. And I mean, to an extent, maybe they do, you know, like if someone has quit a full-time job in order to be a full-time caregiver, clearly, right? But it has to be within reason, one would hope. Look, an heir may come to the conclusion that they're allowed the ability to engage in what they feel is the prevention of the exhaustion of funds, Mm. which I mean, I can relate to that. I'm very, very grateful to my sister who took the lead in our father's care because he was just wildly spending money. And she came up with a plan that was genius and handled it really, really well. And she was able to, because she's really savvy and really smart and she knew how to do that. I don't think everybody necessarily has that particular level of functioning. If the relationship between the caregiver and the victim has a history of animosity, stress, or abuse, the perpetrator can feel entitled. Like, I got the crap beaten out of me. I got treated like crap, so I am I deserve this. Also, the heirs, the siblings, family members, they may have negative attitudes towards others who are identified as heirs. This can motivate the perpetrator to act in ways that then actively prevent their perceived rivals, the ones they think of as rivals, whether they actually are or not, to keep them from acquiring the victim's assets. The perpetrator may think that he or she deserves reimbursement because they carried out the lion's share of the responsibility, whether or not this is objectively true. And that's a tough one because, again, if someone gives up their full-time job in order to be a full-time caregiver, that's a lot. That can impact somebody's finances pretty significantly. But of course, when it comes to mental gymnastics, there's a lot at play in the issue of elder abuse. Perpetrators may decide that the victim has more that they can use and therefore they're entitled to it. Like, well, they don't need it. They're you know, she has a sedentary life. She's here. She doesn't need that extra $10,000 she has. And I'm going to spend it on, you know, a down payment for a car or something. Yeah. The the family dynamics went like money. And especially you see this more like when people pass or when assets are passed down, just the nastiness that comes out in people. And I could see how this could play into this, especially if say like one sibling has kind of been put as the point person to deal with all this. Like let's say everyone else is too busy and this person is able to do it then there's not a lot of oversight. There's not a lot of communication. Right. That person that is now caring can start to, like you were saying, see other siblings as these perceived rivals and just like maybe putting some money away for themselves. I, I don't know. It just could get so messy. It can. And, you know, it's it's another one of those things where just as an aside, you know, part of my own self-care Mm -hmm. is doing a gratitude practice. Like, you know, especially during particularly stressful times, I really like try and reorient myself. Like, what am I grateful for? And it can be, I am grateful for that magical device in my kitchen that turns beans into rocket juice for me. (laughs) You know, like I'm I'm grateful for the coffee maker. I'm grateful for people in my life. But I'll tell you in this situation, I feel like incredibly lucky, blessed, grateful that my family, we just all came together to figure all of it out. Like there was no infighting. And Dr. Shiloh, I have heard horror stories from people that absolutely did not expect it. They expected to have the outcome Uh that my family did and the exact opposite happened. Yeah. Like long protracted fights that go on for literally decades. I mean, it's 
horrifying. And I, what do you think that, does that have a personality <laughs> flavor or a characterological flavor to you? I don't know because I've heard the same thing working with my adult clients, obviously that, you know, just life stuff kind of comes up for them. And you're right. Like they, they don't expect their siblings to be this way. And so to me, that kind of says, well, maybe it isn't personality disorder because they would already know like, okay, yeah, I better bear down because my sister's a little kooky or, you know, my brother's got this, this sort of like sadistic streak where he doesn't care. And he's just going to steamroll all of us when it comes out of nowhere. I don't know what that is. I just non-clinically money makes people crazy. <laughs> well, I can't help but wonder that it may be part of uh, childhood baggage, you know, yeah. just like a yeah. like a developmental thing where, like we have said many times before, that you might not be a narcissist, you might not be borderline or histrionic, but when you're stressed out, you may exhibit some of those flavors. So mm -hmm. maybe this kind of level of stress brings out the antisocial aspects that people have as a defense mechanism, maybe, you yeah. know? Yeah, well, and and just to like pause and kind of talk about this all together and like how, what does this feel like and our reaction to, to elder abuse in general, for me, obviously what's it's the worst and the ickiest is, is the physical abuse, the neglect for just the care, the the hygiene, the, the physical aspects of care of these people. And of course, you know, the infliction of any pain or suffering and the disregard for human life really has me just kind of looking at those antisocial traits yeah. of people in general. You know, it feels though, almost like they're dehumanizing, yes, like something is yes. going on where they have found this place in their psyche where they can see the dependent adult, the elderly person as less deserving yeah, not a person yeah. and basically just a thing to help them get their needs met at the expense of that person. It's very parasitic and yeah. sadistic, yeah. but yeah, I don't know. So when we talk about non-relatives or non-related perpetrators, unfortunately, this can include career criminals who specialize in scamming or conning others and defrauding others in general, or looking at elderly victims as being particularly easy to target. Also, what we talked about earlier, if, if we have an element of a sexual offender who's going to put themselves in a place where they have access to a lot of victims, that could be happening as well. But due to a lack of federal and state oversight, Many places in the U.S. have few restrictions on jobs like caregiving, allowing ex-convicts to become home health care employees. And what this means isn't just to paint ex-convicts with one brush, but they may not be requiring background checks or even vetting for the type of felonies that were committed. So it might say, oh, this person has a felony, but then if you pay for the cheapest background check, it's not going to give you any details there. Alternatively, financial abusers are often family members. I, I think we talked about that, including adult children, adult grandchildren. There's a 1996 Adult Protective Service financial abuse report that said that 60.4% of substantiated cases involved an adult child of the victim. And then in the majority of cases, it's been found that crimes by the adult children of elderly victims go undetected or are discovered long after the assets have already been depleted because that's when it comes to the surface. And 40% of the perpetrators were the victim's biological sons or daughters. 
20% were other relatives, very small percentage, 1.5% were spouses, and then 4% were non-relatives. And that comes from the work of Choi and his researchers in 1999. So not only is it a fact that perpetrators are often relatives, particularly children or grandchildren of the victim, but a high number of these perpetrators are dependent on the elderly victim for housing or other assistance. And that's this, a big deal. Yeah, this yeah. includes both genders. Again, as listed before, a high number of substance abusers. So picture, like you were talking about, your detective friend knocks on the wrong door. Someone answers the door who's clearly living under that roof, but taking advantage of the roof of the elderly victim and being dependent on them for housing and then the other utilities that come with it. They just kind of become squatters and move yeah. in with them under this ruse of taking care of them. Oof. Yeah, exactly. So we're going to talk about some more psych issues here. And we want to shout out doctoral candidates, Athena C.Y. Chan and Marlene S. Stum for their research on the impact of family systems in the phenomenon of elder abuse. And another shout out, thank you to them for graciously allowing us access to their published article from the Journal of Applied Gerontology. As we have said before in this episode, family dynamics are integral to understanding elder abuse. And I immediately thought of family systems as a way to help understand how this happens. So Scott, can you enlighten us? Because this is your area. Yeah, this is definitely where, you know, the those of us that started off as master's level clinicians, I mean, family systems is very much a part and parcel of becoming a marriage and family therapist. So as a brief explanation, family systems theory is like this perspective and understanding of human behavior that visualizes the family group as a unit or a, a complex social system, a social organism, or even I think one of the terms back in the 80s was the psycho-cybernetic organism. And in this organism's functioning, which is made up of immediate, but not necessarily geographical local family members, each individual interacts in a way that is meant consciously or unconsciously to influence each other's behaviors. And family members are entwined in very complex connections that will allow an understanding of the whole group to emerge, as well as the understanding of each of the individuals. So in family systems, our functioning as individuals is determined by your place in that system. And while you as an individual have agency, that agency is very much at the whim of the forces of the entire system, which contains many competing emotional, intrapsychic, and physical demands, as well as role definitions, which can be interpreted very differently by each person. So you can think that you're the rescuer in the family and you've got a sibling that thinks that you are the black sheep, devil mm -hmm. dog, whatever. So very, very complex. Many influences here at play, including boundaries, hierarchies, loyalties, as well as fit cultural and belief systems. Okay. So back to the paper that we were referencing, Chan and Stom sought to dive deeply into an understanding of how elder financial abuse happens in the family. And their study is particularly remarkable as it's the first empirical study of elder financial exploitation informed by the family systems theory. So Chan and Stum actively utilize a tool that UMFTs are familiar with called a geneogram, but not just as a visual aid to see family relationships, but also able to identify family context profiles. So they examine a number of family structures and roles, and in doing so, were able to identify four distinct profiles, including the following, single victim, single perpetrator, single victim, multiple perpetrators, two victims, single perpetrator, and two victims, multiple perpetrators. Scott, 
please break this down for us non-family system experts in terms of elder abuse examples? Please. Well, I mean, their description is pretty good. I mean, like it basically, I think it's pretty self-explanatory, but single victim, single perpetrator, in this case, the common perp was the adult child or remarried spouse, which is frightening to me and involves one to two living generations under the same roof or in, within the same dynamic. Most older victims had less than three adult children. Then Single victim, multiple perpetrators is pretty self-explanatory. Two victims, single perpetrator is usually an adult child caregiver who is the singular abuser with or without siblings who are unaware or uninvolved in the abuse. And then finally, there's two victims, multiple perpetrators. And for both profiles with multiple perpetrators, the study found that up to five family perpetrators from three different nuclear families were involved. And they found that the perpetrators typically work together and in conjunction with each other rather than independently, which is horrifying to me, meaning that everybody's coming together and colluding to take advantage of people and, and whatever they don't necessarily in the study go into sort of qualitative understanding of what the motivation is like that they are they all colluding and they've done this mental gymnastics and think, well, we deserve this or this is this is the best way to take care of our elders or whatever. But that to me, just as a concept is really, really disturbing. A common combination of perpetrators would be constructed from a victim's adult child, the adult child's spouse or partner being the in-law and the adult child's children, which would be the victim's grandchildren. Okay. So that's the most common familial perpetrator dyad or triad. And disturbingly, these victim perpetrator groups studied could involve up to three generations in the extended families. Wow. So with the categories that are two victims, does that mean it's like a couple? Yes. That's okay. what they're referring to as like a married couple. Got it. Got it. Yeah. Got it. Oh my goodness. So they also found that both males and females had equal chance to be older victims or family perpetrators, but most concerned family members were females with adult daughters and they were the most common as well as daughters-in-law and granddaughters to the older victims. Hmm. And then adult children and remarried spouses were common perpetrators acting alone. Multiple perpetrators were not likely to be siblings, but spouses of adult children, in-laws, and grandchildren of older victims. Across the four profiles, most primary perpetrators moved in with the older victims or lived in the same neighborhood as the victims and utilize their role as family power of attorney to exploit the victims even further. Yikes. Yeah. Wow. Yikes. What an interesting study. Yeah. Again, thank you to both of these authors for letting us use that. And thank you for doing the research because research in this way just makes it easier down the road for people to identify these things going on. And I would not be surprised if their study is used in court cases, actually, when it comes to adjudication. Sure. Like, I absolutely think that would happen. So definitely this theme of elder abuse has come up in media a number of times and oh, a lot yeah. of different examples. What was the one that you would say is number one? Well, I think I would like to talk about I Care A Lot, which we talked about in our Free Britney episode. That was a Netflix film with Rosamund Pike and Diane Wiest and Peter Dinklage. And I'm going to give more spoilers here than I did last time just to kind of give an overview. Well, it's been like a year, so it, I think it we're has. okay. I mean, like... <laughs> go watch it though. It's so good. I love it. It's chilling. It. It's Rosamund Pike 
is such a good actress. Ugh. And I'm so glad that she's now playing non-psychotic characters because after Gone Girl, I was is like, oh though? my God, you're completely crazy. <laughs> no, she's great. She's in the science fiction series now that I love and she's wonderful and warm and witty, but she's oh, freaking good. scary and well, I care a lot. She's a shark. Yeah, there's like some commercial that she's in and she still has that very like rigid haircut. And I'm terrified severe, of her yeah. just in like this well, commercial for whatever she's selling. Yeah, that's the that is like that's a problematic haircut. Any any hairstylist is going to tell you like the Betty Page bob or the severe asymmetrical thing just oh. means somebody's going through something rough, right? Yes, but so there's these professional firms out there who specialize in being appointed conservators and many times for the elderly, and so this is that don't have anybody, right? 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 Yeah. Yeah, so this is what she does. And she, her character has this scam where she gets her medical doctor friend to feed her information about elderly patients that are otherwise living their lives just fine, but have zero family. And do you remember who the doctor is played by? I don't. Alicia Witt. I, oh, wow. Oh, yeah. wow. Okay. Right? Ooh, boy. So it's, it's a female doctor. And then she's, and she's also, being paid off. She's, she's being, being paid, paid a lot off. of money. Yeah, she basically will tell... Rosamund Pike's character, like, here's a good one for you. I found one. She's got no family. And basically, the doctor signs off on paperwork to get the court to grant her conservatorship without the person even knowing. And then they, they have no idea it's nope. happening to them. Nope. And then they get a knock on their door to, you know, have this notice from the court and they show up with the police and say, we're here to take you away, basically. And then she's also in cahoots with this facility manager who gets them right in and they, it's very nice and she gets them in there they drug them up and then she starts selling their assets off and it makes a shit ton of money well she ends up doing this to a woman who seemingly doesn't have any family on paper but that's because her son is a very quote-unquote successful crime boss so you can imagine it's like she messes with the wrong elderly mom and the brutality that gets unleashed when you have the psychopathic traits of both rosamund pike's character and peter dinklage's character the back and forth is just super dark really great acting it's fantastical as far as a depiction of how the system can take advantage of someone but very very good so rosamund pike won a golden globe for her role in this that's a very big deal and for the i thought this was really fascinating because for the broadcast she was zooming in from london i believe mm. because she's a british actress and she was very, you know, she was very gracious and accepting of the award. She thanked a lot of people and she kind of ironically thanked the American system for being so screwed up oh, that the story could be written, which wow. I think is really, I mean, like on one hand, what she's, I mean, she's making a very good point is that this system meant to protect elders can be hijacked and manipulated by yeah. other people. And that actually does happen. Right. There's a very famous case here in LA County of a woman who was a conservator and she was doing this right and left. I mean, and they didn't even notice until they were like, you make $70,000 a year. Why are you taking three vacations a year and you're driving late model Mercedes? Like that doesn't make any sense. Yeah. yeah. They finally caught her for that. Yeah. Wow. So yeah, that's a great one. Um, of course, I love all things Southern Gothic and dramatic. And also there's a term called hagsploitation, which was back in the 50s and 60s when some of the older actresses were being used to make these very campy, but kind of like late night movies. 
and Betty Davis stars in Hush, Hush, Sweet Charlotte. That's a 1964 American psychological thriller, also known as a hagsploitation. Betty Davis, who was older at the time, Olivia de Havilland, who was like eternally youthful and very <laughs> professionally put together, and a wonderful performance by Agnes Moorhead, who most people know as Samantha's mother in Dora in Bewitched, as well as Mary Astor in her final film role. It's about a reclusive Southern Belle who is plagued by a terrible family secret. And there's sort of this implication throughout the series of like, what is going on? Or is this person imagining it? Are they slowly losing their cognitive functioning? Or are they being gaslit? So as you can probably tell, they're being gaslit. It starts in 1927 when a young Southern Belle marries her lover. Well, they plan to elope during a party at her father's mansion in Louisiana. Charlotte's father confronts the lover over the affair and intimidates him with the news that his wife had visited the day before and revealed the affair. So John pretends to Charlotte that he can no longer love her and that they have to part. But then he is later ambushed and decapitated <gasps> in the summer house by an assailant with a cleaver. And there is just over and over again, you see this really bad head thumping on the floor oh, and no. rolling across the floor. It's just the best. We have to do a watch party. We have to. We this just have to be. do a watch yeah. party. The traumatized Charlotte finds his body and returns to the house in a bloodstained dress. Of course. And so, of course, they think she's the one that did it. 37 years later, she's basically a spinster, having inherited the whole estate from her father. And then it's just her and her loyal housekeeper, Velma, Again, Agnes Moorhead is hilarious. Just the way she says Charlotte's name is really great. So she is actually now being evicted by the Louisiana Highway Commission because they're going to mow down her property and build an interstate through it. She's like frightening off cops with a shotgun. <laughs> and it's really funny. Her cousin Miriam comes in to get her to, you know, sign things over. And anyway, I don't want to give anything more away because yeah. we're going to have a watch party with this and it's going to be a total laugh fest it's really great got it but there is an elder abuse element to it in that yes. miriam starts kind of taking over her life right 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 got right it. in very questionable ways yeah yeah let's put that on the books for sure this time because we are way way overdue there was also a docuseries well there is a docuseries on netflix called dirty money and it's an investigative documentary that has two seasons and episode five of season two is called Guardians, Inc. The premise of the episode was to basically expose the insidious form of abuse within America's legal guardianship system, a la I care a lot. And what they did is they revealed how abusive guardianship essentially robs our most vulnerable citizens of the American dream. And it showed in states like Texas how guardians are entitled to earn commissions on sales of their ward's assets, on top of drawing wages for themselves and assistants and lawyers. And it just really did a deep dive. So I went to go look this episode up just on IMDb to log it in our resources. And the episode is gone. And I was like, hmm, weird. What's this about? Am I getting bad info here? What? Yeah. So I ended up finding articles about another layer of crime associated with the making of this episode. Oh my God. So they had to pull the episode. They had to pull the episode because wow. in 2020, there's a defamation lawsuit naming Netflix and their other partners. So on August 18th of 2020, lawyers representing Nicholas Luisa, one of the attorneys highlighted in the film, filed a 38-page complaint claiming the episode defamed Luisa's reputation by presenting a false narrative 
in the docu-series that left out really key circumstances related to the real estate transactions and legal proceedings highlighted in the film. So I guess it was framed as though this had a, this attorney had really taken advantage of an elderly man featured in the documentary. And so what do attorneys do? He turned around. They <laughs> yeah, they sued. And I don't know the outcome or if that was even able to be released to the public, except that it is now gone from the Netflix catalog. Well, but clearly your your main point has been made, which is that a system that allows somebody to take a commission off of what they're selling that is supposed to go back into the kitty to take care of that individual, like that's, I mean, I'm not going to say only in Texas because I'm sure it exists in other states too, but that's criminal right there. That's I mean, it sounds a lot like the Britney stuff, you know, and then yeah. you had like her family overlapped in that and it was just super messy. Yeah. So there's one that is also really, really, it's a tearjerker mm -hmm. and it's really disturbing as it is showing several people, you know, who are able to express what is happening to them. And, you know, watching an elderly person who's infirm cry and be upset is, you know, it's it's incredibly disturbing. And also it's not an acting performance, it's, it's real. But yeah. this one is called Last Will and Embezzlement. And this one starred actor Mickey Rooney. So this is a feature length documentary about financial exploitation of an elderly man inspired by then recent and true life events that happened to the family of the executive producer of the film, Pamela S.K. Glasner. And although the film showcases what happened to Ms. Glasner's family, its focus goes much broader in an effort to highlight just how wide this phenomenon is and how prevalent the issue is of senior financial exploitation. Yeah, Mickey Rooney goes into talking about as throughout his career, because he started as a child as actor. As a kid, yeah. How even back then, they were fucking with him with his finances and not telling what he was getting because he was a child. But that kind of stemmed all the way up until because he worked into, you know, his later years, how it was still happening, how the people around him, his financiers were telling him he was getting this much for working on a project and it didn't seem right to him and people were embezzling money from him up until the end. So yeah. it's very sad in the Miss Glasner's family. She had an, an uncle in a care facility that she goes to call and check on him and they go, oh, well, your brother's taking care of everything and da, 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 da. And she's like, I don't have a brother. So it's, it's interesting to go and look at the lengths that they go to exploit these individuals. But be ready because these things can be really disturbing. Yeah. Like we said, this is a subject that really can can stir up a lot of emotions. So even though trigger warning can also exist for the things that you may read or watch as mm. a result of listening to us today. So please be careful. Absolutely. So well, Dr. Shiloh, thank you very much for today's episode. This was fascinating. Of course, of course. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad we finally touched on this topic, even though it's a rough one. I hope to see some folks in Savannah this weekend. Yay. Let me know what you want as a souvenir and I'll bring it back. Bring a ghost back. I want a Southern ghost in my apartment. <sighs> okay. Just bring one back. I'll let a nice one attach itself to me and then I will drop it at your doorstep. <laughs> great. Preferably one that, that cleans. Well, yeah, that'd, that'd be, be nice. So for the rest <laughs> of this month, we're, we have a few things planned for you guys. You are next week going to get a vintage episode that is going to be a re-release from our Patreon feed that is fantastic and is us with our friends from the LA Meekly podcast. And then I am trying to put together a Savannah true crime episode for the third week of the month. Fantastic. So hopefully I can make that happen and bring it, you know, we're getting into spooky season. I know it's only September, 
I will go get my pumpkin spice cold brew after this recording. Yay. It's the only thing I'll leave the house for with it being so hot. <laughs> but yeah, we got some fun stuff planned for you guys. Scott, you and I need to look at dates and we will do a watch party and let's open it up to everyone, not just Patreon. So we can have everyone join. Oh, I've got a great idea about how we can do it. Okay. I think that we, instead of doing it via Amazon's watch party, I have a better idea that's going to make it available to people and a Sweet. lot more interaction. So we'll talk more awesome. about that coming up. All right, everyone, we'll see you next time on LA. Not so. Confidential. Bye-bye. Bye, folks. We sincerely thank you for spending some time with us today. LA Not So Confidential is part of the Crawl Space Media Network in partnership with Glassbox Media. Each episode is hosted, produced, and written by Dr. Scott and Dr. Shiloh. Our post-production editing and sweetening magic is handled by the multi-talented Jason Usry of Earcult Productions. The LA Not So Confidential theme entitled Cool Vibes Film Noir is composed and performed by the talented Kevin McLeod. He graciously allows us to use his music via a Creative Commons attribution license. Please check out all of Kevin's amazing work on YouTube. All of the resources for each episode can be found on our website at www.la-not-so-confidential.com. You can find us on Instagram at LA Not So Podcast, on Twitter at LA Not So Pod, and on Facebook at LA Not So Confidential. Media inquiries and bookings are scheduled at alienistentertainment at gmail.com. Please join us each month on Saturdays at 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time for a live streaming and very interactive broadcast on YouTube entitled Behind the Couch. Stay tuned to all of our social media for our live stream scheduling announcements. Subscribe to LA Not So Confidential so you never miss a new episode. Lastly, we would be honored if you joined our Patreon at patreon.com slash LA Not So Podcast so you can be the first notified about upcoming live events, social gatherings, and super cool swag coming your way. Thanks for listening and join us next time on LA Not So Confidential. Confidential.